I do want this to be my personal legacy that we fixed a broken part of healthcare that I've experienced. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Nada Al-Saleem, the founder and CEO of Gaia, the world's first IVF insurance. One in six couples are affected by fertility issues, but with aspiring parents spending over £14,000 on average on their treatment, only one in seven people in the UK who require IVF end up accessing it. On top of this, IVF remains not only inexpensive, but also an emotionally exhausting and sadly often a last resort for many aspiring parents. Gaia was created after Nada's own fertility journey, and he scaled the business rapidly, having raised funding from top-tier VCs and built an incredible team. So I cannot wait to hear about his founder journey and more about his innovative and category-defining startup. So Nada, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. How are you? Thank you, James. I'm great. I'm fantastic. Good stuff. Well, it's a real privilege to have you here. Um, we met a few months ago where we went for a lovely stroll down the river, had a coffee, and I learned a bit more about your business. So it's uh, uh, really exciting to get you on the podcast and share more for, for anyone that doesn't know about it. But before we jump into the story of Gaia, I'd like our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So we'll start with some quick fire questions as we always do. So please finish these sentences after me. I grew up wanting to be... A carpenter. Oh, that's that's a different one. Why a carpenter? I was actually obsessed with, with a carpenter who had a workshop opposite my grandmother's house as a kid, and I would just watch him all day from the window, and I was just loved how meticulous he was. It was fascinating. Oh, wow. Amazing. It's a real craft, isn't it? My father-in-law is fantastic with woodwork, and I mean, I'm just useless at all things practical, so <laughs> but I have huge admiration for anyone that's good with their hands. I ended up being useless at all things, at, at all things that require manual work. But but never really never really stopped. I think it's one of the most underrated crafts. Indeed. Second question: a misconception people have about me is that I am an extrovert. I think mainly because I have enough social skills to hide it well. People people confuse it. The reality, like most people, and probably a little bit of both, but I'm actually more of a highly functioning introverted extrovert. If it makes any sense. Interesting. Yeah, and that that is a becoming a theme I'm noticing on the podcast for a lot of founders that you would always think are extroverts are actually not. The last time I cried was when? A few weeks back, maybe four or five weeks back, I I, uh, I watched a movie called The Swimmers. It's a Netflix movie about two Syrian sisters who flee Syria to Greece as asylum seekers and before they go on to compete at the, um, at the Rio Olympics Games. And it's a very touching story. Well, actually... I think I wept, but also because I was on an airplane. So I'll, I'll blame that on gather pressure. No, I, I've heard amazing things about that film. That's definitely on my watch list. Amazing story. If there was one thing that I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be... One thing would probably be honesty. I think um, there's a lot of perpetuated narrative that comes on, on platforms such as this one of incredible success stories of wonderfully gifted people who had it all figured it out. And that creates a little bit or amplifies a little bit of the survival bias. And the reality is we're all trying and sometimes we really have no clue what to do or what the right answer is. And you feel like you almost have no space to say that's okay. But it is okay because I think entrepreneurs shouldn't or don't have all the answers, but great ones actually know how to find them. 
but there needs to be a higher degree of honesty and not get embarrassed by the fact that we don't know how to fix things and ask for help and find the most efficient path to an answer. And I think entrepreneurship suffer from lack of that honesty and vulnerability. That is such a great answer. And actually, part of the reason we created this podcast was to show the real stories of entrepreneurship, the warts and all tales and the the challenges overcome and the mistakes made. I think, sadly, the hype that comes with startup life and the entrepreneurs that come with it, and we always see the good bits. And I think sometimes that leads the wrong people into entrepreneurialism that don't have a realistic view of what it really takes. And as someone that's 10 years into my startup journey, I know about all the, the ups and downs and roller coasters that it is. So I think it's, it's, it's a very, very, very good answer. My final quickfire question is, my biggest failure to date is... According to whom, uh, I would ask you, probably to, like, to my Palestinian grandmother, probably I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I face a lot of hardships, um, for sure. But I do, I'm not trying to get away from the answer, but I do not like the definition of failure the way we use it because... It really just a very subjective judgment that we oftentimes prematurely place on our results based on our own expectations of what the outcomes are. And like goal setting that we usually set for ourselves, it's often fundamentally flawed. So you end up failing against an unrealistic expectation based on a stupid goal that you've put. It sort of doesn't make a lot of sense. I think uh, so long as you haven't done something major or colossal failure that impacted others disproportionately, and so long as you're progressing, I think there's probably no major failure that you have to stop at. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Thank you. Well, we've already got a little glimmer into who you are and how you think about things. And before we come on to talk about Guy, I wanted to start at the beginning, hear a bit more about your upbringing. And I was particularly interested, I know you worked in banking, so it'd be good to learn a bit more about the early life, but also your early career at, at Goldman Sachs and how that kind of combination of upbringing and, and finance background have helped sort of shape you when it comes to startup and entrepreneurial life? Good question. I think uh, I always think uh, hopefully in many years I will do so much good in the world that I'll redeem myself and I'm still getting asked that question. About... <laughs> but I think a combination of being an immigrant and going to investment banking sort of prepares you to be or to approach founder life from a very fundamental point of view, from a very basic point of view, which is it really just hones down on your work ethics, right? I arrived in investment banking and I was surrounded by those incredibly smart people um, highly educated, all the qualifications in the world. You almost had no chance on paper, right? And I think the easiest way to kind of work out your self-doubt is to really take a decision of who you want to be. And going back to the little bit of that sort of underdog mentality that comes in just being an immigrant and by way of what you actually had to do in order to be here and you earned a seat at the table. I did take a decision very early on that all those people could be smarter than me, better than me, faster than me, or anything really. But you know what? No one's going to outwork me. Because I felt that gave me a great degree of control. Because if you're not going to be willing to work as hard as I am, that feeling almost made me feel invincible because that's the only lever that I actually can control. And I, I don't want to debate whether it's right or wrong, but it just worked for me. And it, it really tied out to my personality and gave me that little edge that I needed in order to feel that I deserve where I want to be. And then if you really think about work ethics now that I, I'm trying to translate some of what I learned to the, to the current life, it is really a skill that travels very, very well. And you always, I always do this exercise. Like if you think about anyone that you know personally in your personal professional life and you really, really like they are really, really competent, they're ridiculously competent. In my opinion, it really always comes down like to that, to work ethics. They have this ability to get things done. They go above and beyond and, and, and always within unreasonable time. 
they come up with creative solutions or they actually know how to get the solution to keep things moving. And the thing about people with like very high work ethic is that they keep going where most stop. And I think that is the difference that really makes the extra mile. And probably that's the only thing that I've translated or, or, or transferred from my previous life that gives me that edge today. It's not a so secret weapon, like this is not sort of like an X factor per se, but I always thought that there's something about the pure and simple getting things done type ability, which for an early stage startup, really just playing a game of progressing against time is like oxygen, really. It is really your your oxygen to keep going. So true. And again, I think uh, for anyone listening to this that likes the allure and the idea of a startup, the reality is you have to work harder, you know, in order to, to get it off the ground, in order to still be in business in a year, three years and have get to product market fit and, and scale and have success, you have to work harder than the next person. I think there is a bit of an anti-hustle culture movement, but it's actually disingenuous to try and suggest otherwise. So I think it's really important that you say that. There's so many rewarding things in startup life, but the one thing you can't escape is the need for hard work. And as you said, all those qualities you just mentioned. And I don't want to conflate this because I also think that the word hustle had took, it almost, uh, it almost became a bad word recently because we associated with like a, a tech bro, toxic culture. I think it's very important to kind of differentiate. Work ethics is something that it, it, it doesn't matter what is it that you do. It's how much pride you take in your own work and how much care and, and seriousness you actually display against your own work. Whether you're a carpenter, whether you're a tech CEO, whether it doesn't matter. What matters is that time and commitment and seriousness that you've put in that defines a little bit of the work ethic. It doesn't matter if you work 20 hours or 24 hours or or no hours at all. It just it's it's that ownership and care and responsibility that you show to your own work that far more important than the actual work, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about the immigrant underdog mentality that I think comes. It reminds me of um my dad told me a story uh, a few years ago about when he came over to England in the from India in the late fifties and he was the only brown kid in the school and he he used that to his advantage he just said right i'm going to get the top marks i'm going to be the strongest the quickest the, you know all the things and he he used that as his way to try and like prove himself and to be normalized and it was very much coming from that i am different but i'm not going to be different i'm going to be better than everybody else and i i see that in a lot of founders that i know that have got to the top and they often have that within i think from their upbringing I know you consider yourself as entrepreneurial, of course, but you didn't necessarily have aspirations of becoming a founder. So can you share a bit more about what led you to actually start Gaia? Yeah, I I think at the risk of boring people with a story, but I'll save it. But but I had a personal experience that's sort of going through that myself. And that was really what made me realize that the current fertility care model in its entirety is is completely broken. And it's designed in in the most financially exclusive manner. It's very privileged that... Money was not the issue for us or was not the hindrance to actually realizing the dream of having a child. But I just realized while I was going through it that most people actually don't have that luxury. They actually do not start treatment because they lack the funds to do so. And I just thought this is really a very human and complex problem to be solved because the process is truly unfair and very, very hard. So in a way, Gaia started from a very simple premise that, that parenthood is a fundamental basic human right and should not really be a luxury good nor should be treated that way and the difference between james and Heather having a child should not really be how big is my bank account it should be that we both should have equal right to do so and should have the right access but more importantly once we go through it there should be a process that exists that actually designs it for the people that are going through the treatment 
which in a way I would say in, in finding Gaia, maybe I didn't solve the problem that I faced, but I found a company that I wish it existed for us. Amazing. Well, we're going to come on to talk about kind of what the business does today. Uh, it's been incredible to see the evolution from afar. But just coming back to your your own founder journey, I guess this is your first time as a founder. How have you found that experience? And what have you found the, the most challenging aspects of that experience? I'll put a little disclaimer that describes this more elegantly. It's the first and last. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that gives you an answer to the challenging aspect of it. I think the most challenging has been equally the most, like paradoxically, has, has, has been the, the equally the most exciting, right? We're creating a category that does not exist. We are building a very complex product to solve a more complex problem in a process that is very, very emotive, very high in financial spend, and very, very high in engagement. So sitting elegantly as a solution, triangulating these three problems is, is really not for the faint-hearted. And if you're not able to kind of push through all the hurdles that you're going to face by reinventing almost like a, the playbook or, or the rulebook of how you do things from, from scratch, I think you're probably going to run out of steam fairly quickly. And that is probably the most challenging and most exciting for, for me personally. It's the complexity of the underlying problem. In the same manner, the most rewarding part of the journey is the fact that just imagine you sit on top of a business where you get to have new children born as your business metric. Like that's your ultimate North Star. That's what you count as a KPI for the business, but also KPI for the impact that you're creating. And the two don't have to be the separate metrics. They're the same metric. The number of lives that you help bring to life is also the gives you a proxy to how well you're doing and how well you're scaling. I'm actually enjoying every minute of it, despite how hard it is at times. Because there's something that I always say, you also have to be extremely grateful for the opportunity. And going back to your father's story and to my parents' story and to all the people that came before us, to be able in life to kind of be responsible and handpick a group of people that help shape your vision and bring it to life and almost like create the kind of company that you want to work for. Like that's something that our parents and grandparents, like this is such a privilege that no one had when they designed their work to be able to kind of design what do they do, who do they do it with, how they do it. And obviously it comes with a cost, right? But the very basic premise of it is, is that of like privilege. And we, you just have to stop sometimes and, and remind yourself how grateful you should be that you're in this position. Yeah, beautifully put. It sounds like you're thriving despite the ups and downs of it, it it sounds like you're enjoying the ride albeit you've said it on air that the first and last time you'll do it <laughs> that says it all about a uh, startup founder life yeah no i don't want to say prematurely but like the people that know from the beginning that that's not going to be the first and last i mean i have also like deep respect but also deep concerns like someone who's like you have to be addicted to pain to be able like, to want to do this all over again you have to have some like really deep love for pain yeah <laughs> So true. And and how would you say that your leadership style has changed over the years? I guess from probably evolved a lot from when you worked in finance to the early days to now when you have a, a large team and you know you're tackling even bigger problems. Good question. I want to say I'm more laid back, but I know some of my team will probably be listening to this and they're like they roll their eyes. <laughs> so maybe I'll answer with more honesty. I don't think my leadership actually style has, has evolved, especially in the last couple of years, right? I don't think it has evolved, right? But a couple of things did change. And the more I think about where do I spend my time or take it differently, right? Today, I do more through others and I am more diligent about my time allocation, right? And if you think about it simplistically, without sort of the, the, the fanfare of founder and CEO, all of that, like I'm employed by a board for 
two things really, my judgment and my time allocation, right? I.e., where do I decide to spend my time to decide on what is why I'm in the seat? So three years in, I think my role today demands a narrower focus than it did before. I think a little bit early, early stage, if you're trying to do too many things at the same time and you're playing so many roles because it's sort of a one and a half man show at best. And like to give you a tangible example, like early days, you're really very close to the product. You're trying to figure out the very basics and making sure that you're pointing in the right direction, pretty much in the weeds. And now, for example, I'm less focused on that and trying to scale myself and focus on partnerships, expansion, trying to scale revenue, a little bit of the things that you have other people who are more qualified than you doing the work and your ability is just to give them context in order for them to do their work and not for me to kind of to, to do the work. And I think and the other thing is really time allocation is where do I decide to spend my time has changed dramatically from what it used to be two or three years ago and I'm just more deliberate now. But I think outside of that, I think it's it's it's, it's really interesting that you use the word because it really does evolve in a in a very different way. Less so propensity to learn new skills, maybe. More so, any milestone achievement, whether good or bad, like whether you've done a great achievement or whether you have a shortfall in the business, like you didn't hit revenue, you didn't hit, you botched a market expansion or you've entered into a new product, whatever it is, good or bad, I think it must trigger a form of rapid assessment of your own leadership. Like we have to do it with a little bit more honesty. Like are we the right people with the right skills, doing the right job to take this company to the next level? And I think if you create that muscle early that people can question this, you'll find a lot of times that you as a CEO spending time on things that you're genuinely not very good at and someone else could be much more impactful and much more um, powerful. You can actually create more leverage, but you sort of took it for granted because you never really honestly questioned, like, why am I spending my time on X versus Y? So a healthy dose of that questioning when you actually either miss a milestone or even achieve a milestone. Like, great, like this went from A to B, fantastic. Who takes it from B to God knows where? Or we didn't hit B, why? Am I the right person who should have taken that? And is there someone else at the company who's better qualified to do this? And how I get them to do that while I just provide them with a little bit more context and resources? It's a good exercise in intellectual humility. Yeah, absolutely. We've discussed the origins of Gaia, but for anyone that hasn't come across the business today, can you share a bit about where the business is at at the moment, your elevator pitch, if you were, and a bit more about how you've kind of been tackling the problem that you're solving and where the business is at in 2023. Yeah, I have an elevator pitch, but Lucy, who has our experience, hates it. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it in her own words. Um, I think what we do is we design IVF insurance for prospective parents today. We design bespoke financial plans that give members or prospective parents visibility on how many cycles might they need to have a child and an insured financial plan to allow them to access treatment. And the way it works is really simple. We pay for the member's treatment at the clinic of choice, and they would only pay us back if and when they have a child. If they don't have a child in their covered cycles, they have um, nothing to pay. So they pay nothing more than their insurance premium. Amazing. It's such a huge industry that hasn't been disrupted before, and it's such a novel way of tackling it. I guess this is still seen, sadly, as a, a taboo topic. How do you navigate that? And what can we do, I guess, more holistically to make these sorts of conversations about fertility and reproductive health more common and less of a taboo? I think we have a cultural pillar at Gaia called default to being open. And I think you do that by exactly defaulting to being open. If you need to destigmatize this, you need to be extremely open and talk about it in order to normalize it. Or else it's always going to be 
that thing that you only hear about when you go through the journey and you tell other people that you're going through the journey. For me personally, since I started doing this, the amount of times that I've just heard stories of people who had anything really from failed IVF cycles to miscarriages, because now we've almost exposed ourselves and we were very open about this, you almost start attracting a little bit more dialogue that comes into a safer space. And I think we just need to continuously do more so that people understand that this is not a silent struggle and people need to go through it in a way of a higher degree of authenticity. Back to this point that I've made about bringing more honesty into entrepreneurship is we just need to be a little bit more open because there is no way you're going to destigmatize it until you actually normalize it by being open. The other thing, which is really a bigger challenge, is, and it's something that annoys me personally, is we must bring the male into the conversation. Today, I kind of do not like it when people think that Gaia is a woman's health business or women's health tech business. And I just never really understood why. Like 50% of the cases that we see are male factor fertility. 50% of all infertility in the world is actually due to low quality sperm. So how do we create the narrative shift of of this is not a woman's health issue, this is a family building problem that affects men and women equally. So we depressure for the stigma from the woman in order to kind of shift it across the family building journey. I don't know how to do that, but I think that's probably where the effort that needs to. We tried to, I mean, we, we spun out a new brand a couple of months ago that looks less like a woman's health and more like a family building platform that talks to two people, regardless of the family formation or what, what is the family as a social construct. And I hope that starts the conversation of moving away from a strictly women's health to a more wider um, common healthcare problem. No, I, I really hope so. I think um, as a bloke, and I know this with a lot of my male friends, we're not always the most forthcoming when it comes to talking about health and well-being things just in general. And it's something I've tried to be more vocal about and vulnerable about, but it's still, you know, it's a, it's a systemic thing that's happened over many hundreds and thousands of years. But I think things like that, just slightly changing the narrative and opening it up and being more vocal, I think will help. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. You've obviously got a a strong personal connection to this topic. How do you separate the emotional side in the business, especially when it's so wrapped up? Those things are so intertwined. I don't think I separate. I actually don't think I want to separate as well. Like this is all too consuming. And part of it, like part of what, what Gaia is, is almost started as an obsession. And I think that's okay. I do want this to be my personal legacy that we fixed a broken part of healthcare that I've experienced. And I don't think I'm going to do that by separating. I think I'm going to do that by being all in. And I don't think I chose to be balanced about this because I chose purposely to be obsessed with the problem because I think that's what sort of drives me to really um, solve it. What I did since day one, which is maybe to answer your question a little bit differently, is I avoided the common pitfall where some founders do is which is they design for themselves. Like I didn't separate the emotion from the business building and I was all too consumed and I'm fairly obsessed with the problem. 
because I've experienced it beforehand. But I don't think I've ever let my bias, having gone through the process, influence a product or a decision without really basing that on what would work for a larger suite of the population that are going through it. And I think that's a common pitfall that I usually see, just like you over-index on your own experience or journey. I've probably done it one or two times, but it's way too few that guided our product and, and design thinking since day one. It's we never really designed for myself. Mm-hmm. But I think, I guess the, the, you know, your personal experience makes it the story even more, I guess, accessible to many people that are hearing it. But clearly there's a lot more to it than just your story. But I, I, for me personally, that it really it strikes a chord. You've gone on to, you know, we've talked a bit about the business. You've gone on to achieve some incredible milestones over the last few years. You raised a C round from previous 40-minute mentor, Leila Zenia from Kindred, a $20 million Series A round led by Atomico, you know, incredible investors that we have the, the privilege of knowing. Can you tell us a, a bit about that fundraising journey and any tips for founders that might be going through this process at the moment? Because we do know that, that, that it's obviously a challenging market at the moment. So I'm sure anyone listening that's in the thick of it would appreciate your guidance. I'm happy to guide. I'm not at a stage where I can give advice, I think, to people because we're still very, very young in our company building journey and kind of sit and think that we have anything figured out is presumptuous at best. Um, Maria Palma from Kindred told me once that every successful company must have a near-death funding round. It's the (laughs) one that almost didn't come together. A really difficult one. So in a way, I'm really looking forward to 2023. But when you look back retrospectively, I think what worked for us, and I don't see enough people doing that a little bit early, is we optimized for relationships and and not transactions. And I do think for early stage founders, probably it is the ultimate marshmallow test is how they choose their investment partners, right? And sometimes I feel like if a founder or CEO is optimizing for a price, like at pre-seed or seed or even A really, in my opinion, it's actually like more of a red flag because like something is off with regard to the scale of your ambition. Like if you truly, truly believe in building a multi-billion dollar business, hopefully what you're leaving on the table today isn't going to be a huge deal, but you could be on the other side stuck with a terrible board member or a toxic relationship. And that will have much more significant adverse effect on your probability of success than whether you raise your seed at 10 versus 13, right? And spending the right amount of time cultivating those relationships early in order to really understand who is it that you want to build a company with is probably an area where we spend lesser time doing because obviously we constrain, especially back in the day when the markets were hot, people were raising money in 48 hours, right? You're not going to build a relationship 48 hours and you have to be opportunistic and I get it, you probably have to take money from whoever gives you that money and I understand that. But I think if you have the luxury of optionality, spending a disproportionate amount of time trying to understand the people and how you improve your odds of success by partnering with the right people at the right stage is really extremely important, right? Since we spoke about Layla, I always joke, like, she gave me the worst economic terms at the, at the term sheet that we chose at Seed. But it also was very clear to me since day one that, that she's the right, like, she and Kindred are the right partners. But I was a team of one at the time, right? So choosing who is going to build that company with you will have a detrimental effect on your ability to make it or not. And that was far more important whether someone would give me 2 to $3 million more in valuation of paper money that means nothing at that point in time. Similarly, when Atomico led our, led our A, I did have a very long relationship with Sasha at the time, maybe for a year before we even discussed any deal or working together. So long story short, 
I think building and investing in a relationship with partners you aspire to partner with is something that we leave a little bit too late. And the other point, which I also go back to the same honesty, is sometimes you just need a higher degree of transparency with 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 the people that you're that you're having a serious conversation with because what's working and what's not, like what doesn't, and we always get into this event like perpetual sales mode where we're continuously selling, and sometimes we stop. And you have to understand that those guys do this for a living, so they really know. Yeah. So. Very true. Take off that pressure, right? Because you're selling to a customer of one. There's like they do this, like they see a thousand of you a year. So their judgment and calibration is often misinterpreted from your side because of the information um, asymmetry. So be transparent and invest a lot of time in really understanding who you want to partner with because relationships at an early stage make it or break it. And yes, when you're advanced at a growth level, I agree, like a dollar is a dollar and you want to board. That is like the, the least amount of headaches. But early stage, you do want this because that what makes you question whether you're making the right decisions or not. 100%. Such good advice. And I'm sure that'll be timely for many people listening. So thank you so much for that. I want to come on and talk about a topic that is incredibly important to me, culture, which I know you have invested lots and lots of time in building a fantastic team. So if we were to lift the bonnet of the company, what's it like to work at Gaia? And how has your culture, we talked about the word evolved, I guess, how has the culture evolved from those very early days where it's pretty much you and Leila in, in a room to now when you have a much bigger team and, you know, I guess more people, challenges perhaps, but uh, I'd love to learn a bit more about that. I like that you use the word evolved because it, it certainly did. I think I'm probably not the best person to tell, to answer what is it like to work at Gaia. So I'll, I'll reserve answering that. But But I think in terms of how we work, it's had evolved because what we need today, James, is very, very different from what we needed two or three years ago when we started, right? And I think that's an ever-changing uh, or evolving need. So I think there is a double contingency in the answer because where it's a function of just what we've realized at this point in time, but also what is in the company need and the challenges that we currently face. And as such, I think there are a few pillars today that reflect our current position and the group of people that we have. I think first is really what... what what I call intellectual rigor. We work in fertility and finance. Like there isn't anything closer to people hard than health and money. So the stakes are very high by definition with, with almost no margin for error. So we as a company need to practice a lot of the first principle thinking that allow you to reinvent some of the things that have been broken for years. And you have to have, to have that ability to break things down into premises. And also, you also need to, to practice a lot of second order thinking because you need to challenge assumptions, but you also need to think through what can go wrong and a lot can go wrong. Combining the two almost needs that intellectual rigor that is a fundamental skill where if you find people at Gaia, they exemplify that. Second, I don't know what to call it. Maybe we could call it determination or determined. Like doing anything of significance is, is extremely hard. We happen to be building in an area that's extraordinarily complex. It's underbuilt out and significantly broken. So in a way... We need people who are just not willing to push against the odds, but actually enjoy it. And that's what I told you, like that idea about like enjoying the complexity. Because otherwise, the work that we probably do is going to be less fulfilling over the short term, right? We need to be driven by the challenge of dramatically bettering the status quo. And if you're not driven by that, we're not a company that's developing a product and we reach the product and then the adoption goes like to a million data points and it's like hyper exponential growth. Like, this is a very different life cycle of how we develop products and services. So you need to be dramatically, genuinely motivated by how you better the status quo. And to better the status quo, 
the, like the quality you probably need the most is to disregard it. Like you need to have a healthy disrespect for what is the current system is because you're not going to change it otherwise. You do need big, bold ideas. You do need to prioritize them. You need to continuously proactively look for ways to make things better. And you as a person that works at Gaia, you can't be afraid of complexity because you're going to find everything complex. You need to be able to take on and solve problems that others really give up on. And there's a reason why no one has done this before. And the secret to doing that is to continuously breed a culture where people are avoiding marginal improvements and focus on what can I do today to move the needle in a meaningful way? And I think if you combine that rigor with determination, with that healthy disregard for authority and status quo in order to push the system to a new level or to reimagine what a patient experience looks like, I think you, you do a makeup of a good cultural mix. I do hate the word culture fit. It feels a bit culty, but those are the type of behaviors that are rewarded. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure there's going to be lots of people listening that will want to apply to work at Gaia. It's, it's, it's definitely a high-performing team tackling the biggest possible problem I can imagine. So it's super helpful tips for anyone that's thinking about sending in their CV. I guess what you're doing is helping aspiring parents all around the world make their dreams of having a family come true. I can't think of anything better having had family and close friends go through this journey, which definitely takes its toll on everybody associated. That is obviously a huge, incredibly challenging, but equally rewarding job. And clearly the team at Gaia are ruthlessly aligned in terms of achieving those goals. But how do you as a founder support your team? Because that is going to take a lot of effort. It's going to be very full on. You've already talked about the, I guess, the relentlessness there is required to tackle such big problems. How do you ensure that you support them in the best possible way, but also hold them to these really high standards that you and the team have set? Yeah, uh, at the risk of complimenting you again, but that's really a good question because I think most people conflate the two. Most people think of demanding and supportive as opposite end of the spectrum. You can either be tough or you can be kind. But uh, in, in my experience, the, the best leaders don't choose. The best leaders are highly, highly demanding and highly, highly supportive at the same time. They push you to new heights. And they also have your back. I think there is a world where you can do this extremely elegantly. I aspire to. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes I, I, I maybe miss the mark. But that's definitely something that I aspire to continuously do. On a more functional level, I really think there have to be more of how do you set a performance culture from day one away from the this I don't want to call this ingenuine, but a little bit of the fluff that goes around where people are just not very clear. Because you have to be unapologetically demanding. You have to be single-minded in the pursuit of your goals. And you have to maintain excellence because that's how you're going to get the people to be the best version of themselves. And what happens, James, and, and you do this 10 times better than I do, for the best people, it's an incredibly liberating experience because they have to run now at a higher velocity with higher standards and a narrower focus. They're, it's an exhilarating performance for them, right? And for the people who don't enjoy that part really well, it's the opposite end of that spectrum. And getting the balance is very hard, but getting it right is a performance magic because they amplify each other, right? And then the compounded effect of those is just electrifying. And so you can do this by setting what you call standard or expectations. And I, I don't think there is a more effective way to do so than like role modeling behavior. And it doesn't come from you. It really comes from everyone. I actually think if the, if the leader is, is role modeling a lot of the behavior single-handedly, probably there's something broken in, in sort of the architecture of that, of that place. It really needs to come from everyone. And the other thing that you can do a little bit easier as, as a leader, selfishly, I, I try to do it, which is if you really think about like 
attracting exceptional people is today my most important task outside of scaling this business, right? The most effective way to hire exceptional people is to be so persistent, even if it hurts you, it takes so long to find them. But when you find them, the truly gifted people, like if you go really for the A players, if, if you have a high talent density of those A players, they themselves become the standard and they do the job for you. Because A players or like those top performers, like genuinely hate mediocrity. Like they just hate other like B or C players, right? So what happens is they just start hiring people that are as performing as they are. And that creates a little bit easier way to kind of set the standard. Because then it, you're not the person who's pushing this. It is really pushed from each side and direction of the business. And it becomes much easier to kind of maintain that standard than to actually continuously be sort of imposing what the standard looks like. Love that. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this chat. I'm sad that we're at the end, but I wanted to quickly just touch upon the the fertility industry as a whole. It's been an untouched industry, one that you're disrupting at the moment. But what needs to change to make fertility treatments more accessible and raise awareness around the various options out there? I think we're in a good point in the industry. I think there's a major paradigm shift happening in the space, right? And if I ask you today, who do you think is going to kind of disrupt the system? It's invariably the newcomers, right? It's invariably the people who are not from the inside, who are from the outside, because those are the people who are little committed by the prior practice to the traditional rules of normal science, right? And so when a shift does happen, it's almost invariably that an outsider pulled it off. I think in our case, we're coming to a place where there is enough of the solutions that are coming to surface. There is hardware solutions, there are software solutions, there are human solutions. So I think our the next phase of this is really what you call like stringing the pearls, right? If more and more companies are attacking the problem of inefficient fertility or treatment really delivery, now it's a matter of how you string the pearls and the way to create an affordable, accessible IVF that you only pay for it when it works, the way it should be, outcome-based. The next level of that is who is going to have the vision to create a consumer version of the end-to-end journey delivered based on science and technology designed for the human that are going through the process and really redesigning something that hasn't been touched in 30 years. And I think that's terribly exciting, but I think I think the space is heating up with a lot of very, very smart people doing smart things. Brilliant. And that's the perfect segue to my final question before I wrap up. What are you most excited about? For the year ahead when it comes to Gaia? We decided, I told you, to be a little bit more quality focused in terms of hiring. We're not going to hire a amount of people. We don't use this as sort of a vanity metric to, to measure our own success by how many how many people. We, we really pride ourselves by the quality of the people that we have. So we want to continue investing in super high quality talent that now is, for the first time since I started the journey, became available really. It's a very different world than two years ago. And we're having access to incredible talent that, frankly, I did not have access to a year ago. That's exciting. UK is very exciting. We, we're scaled the product. We're, we're designing some of the partnerships and our existing and new partnerships. And there is a lot of room to further grow here. I don't think we even scratched the surface and not being modest, but generally. And lastly, in the US, where I'm spending 50% of my time these days, it's the most exciting thing about sort of the consumer healthcare in the US is the amount of white space. It's just completely broken and there's so much to be built. So we're trying to focus on launching in, in, in the US this year. There is infinite room to improve the consumer experience in healthcare and build a massive, massive company. There is, and if you really think what the, like what, what a consumer healthcare company is lacking is really our core competency, which is our ability to engage and retain patients in a way or members in a way that most healthcare companies have failed to do historically. 
And for us, James, we just built this product and service that people love and people are become their biggest advocates and their biggest ambassadors. And we almost just need to invest time in how to nurture this to translate this across the Atlantic and create a company that people genuinely want to be part of. And I think that's terribly exciting. It sounds amazing. So much to look forward to in 2023 and beyond. But I can't wait. I mean, we'll have to get you back on the podcast in a couple of years because I think uh, the business is going to be having a huge impact across the world and uh, I can't wait to see it happen. Now that we're sadly at an end, I've got three final wrap-up questions for you. Quick fire, as we always like to end things. In one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Gaia? I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. And I promise you that we won't stop until we fix this for good. Amazing. And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I want to say Jacinda Arden, the ex-PM of New Zealand. I think uh, she's an incredible leader that has reminded me and us all that kindness and strength are not mutually exclusive. That's the, the two terms that I told you we often conflate. Even more importantly, she's shown that a good leader possesses both and stuff and empathy. And I find her extraordinary. Yeah, agreed. Amazing. Thank you. And finally, what's the best ever piece of advice that you've received that you'd like to pass on to our 40-minute mentor listeners? Learn to say no. I think it's easy to say yes. And the difference between good and great often is what you avoid. And we're not trained in a way to actually know when to say no. And you can't do anything, but you can't do everything. And you have you really have to narrow the focus. And I don't think we're trained that way. So maybe learning when to say no probably been a very helpful advice. Brilliant. Nada, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to chat. Everyone here at Fortunate Mental and JBM wish you the very best of luck uh, for the rest of the year and, and beyond. And I look forward to catching up over a coffee soon too. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, James. Thank you so much. I love how honest and open Nada was in this episode. And I'm so impressed by the work he and the Gaia team are doing. It is so important. If you'd like to find out more about Gaia or get in touch with Nada directly, then please make sure you follow the link in the show notes. We are slowly approaching the end of Series 9, but we have some very exciting feature series lined up for the coming months. So if you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe and follow JBM on LinkedIn to avoid missing any big announcements over the coming months. And if you would like to get involved in any of our upcoming episodes, either as a guest or a sponsor, then please get in touch with Hannah, our wonderful head of marketing and 40-minute mental producer on hannah at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you again next week for even more mentorship. Mentorship.